All right, go ahead, state your name and company, and three, two, one for a mic level check. Sure. My name is Mike Ranfro. I'm with a company called Blue Boat Subsea, and uh, Blue Boat Subsea is a renewables service provider. I also own three other companies that are primarily traditional energy companies, Deep Blue Subsea, Deep Blue Marine, and Deep Blue Offshore International. Now, you reached out to me on social media about your company, and if my memory serves me correctly, you mentioned you had uh, 29 years of oil and gas experience. Is that right? Yeah, I moved to Houston from Roseau, Minnesota in 93. Okay, and where'd you move to in Texas? I've lived predominantly in the Houston area. Um, I lived in Houston for five years. And when my wife and I got married in 99, we moved out to Spring, which is on the north side of Harris County, which encompasses Houston. When kids came along post-Katrina, we uh, decided we wanted to be a little further away from uh, all of the modern uh, childhood temptations, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My uh, morning show partner, he grew up in Saudi Arabia uh, on an oil base. It's called Dahran, which is actually like a city, but it's a it's, it's really an oil base because all the employees there, from the teachers to the grocery store workers, they're actually employees of Saudi Aramco. And back, right. I've, I've actually I've actually done work uh, with Saudi Aramco. I spent a year during Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia. Okay. So right. you're you're familiar with that then? Yes, sir. Um. So anyway, he uh, he jokes that you know when he was six, I think it was sixteen, they send you away to boarding school because of the temptations <laughs> that that come with a foreign market. And uh, being in Saudi Arabia, it was in the best interest to send the boys away to Saudi to boarding boarding school. So I anyway, that, that's what made me think of it when you said the temptations of that. But I was actually thinking you might want to move away from the coast just because of hurricanes. Uh, just by sheer just safety and just, you know, different lifestyle. And up here in the Midwest, we've got flooding issues and people get tired of the cold. And you know what I mean by that. You know, I spent 25 years in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, on the Canadian border, and I would much rather deal with hurricanes, to be honest. They're really not that bad. I mean, depending on where you're at. Um, and where you, yeah, what your uh, structure's like, too. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we had, during Hurricane Ike in 09, we had 117-mile-an-hour winds over the top of my house. We lost power. We were without power for 13 days, but we have generators and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like snow plows up north, right? And um, we never had, I mean, we, we had power. It was just generator power. The only inconvenience was having to go get you know, so many gallons of gas a day to keep the generator going. Find and it interesting. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. We, you know, I mean, I've, I don't even know how many hurricanes I've been through. Eight or ten, probably. And, I mean, we've never suffered any substantial damage. We've had inconveniences. Um, Hurricane Harvey, we were surrounded by water, but we were above it. Um, 
course, we just had the winter storm down here, which I'm, I'm sure everyone up north jokes about because I'd have never missed a day of work had I still lived in Minnesota. But we just don't have the infrastructure to remove ice and snow. We don't have plows. Uh, most of us lost power. Um, it, it's just a slight, it, it's a trade-off, right? Hurricanes that replace blizzards, in my, in my mind, haven't been here as long as I have. One of the things that the Texas freeze or the power outage and, you know, that that just happened last month. The uh, thing that reminded me of up here in Minnesota and North Dakota, we get people that go without power for weeks all the time, but they're they're rural people. They're used to it and they're self-sufficient because when when the rain comes in and then it freezes, it coats those power lines. And out, out in the rural part, man, those power lines, if they snap, sometimes it takes two weeks before the power company can get out there and repair them. And, you know, those people living out there, there's like four of them, four homes out there. And it's, it's funny because when I was at the radio station, we used to check in with them for daily updates. And they were doing better than a lot of people around town. <laughs> so, my, my mother grew up in Lakota, just west of, northwest of you. Um, just eat between Grand Forks and, and uh, Devil's Lake. Sure. And uh, we still have the family farm there. And you're, you're right, they're very self-sufficient. I mean, it would take a, a, a pretty catastrophic, probably an apocalyptic type of a event for them to uh, have too many concerns. So let's uh, transition a little bit to... What you're doing now, now you spent, you know, you, you grew up in Minnesota, War Road, actually Canadian border. And, yeah, yeah. and then you, you moved down to Texas where you spent 29 years in the oil and gas industry. My guess is you didn't spend any time in the oil and gas industry up in War Road. I did not. No, I, there, uh, there's none up there. There's nothing up there, is there? No, no. I mean, I, I worked in a typical rural farming community. I worked at yeah. the elevator, the lumber yard. Uh, there used to be a chain of lumber stores, you know, Roberts and Lumber out of Grand Forks. I worked for them for several years. I did construction. Maybe a hockey stick company in there. I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Christian Brothers, yeah. maybe, yeah. Yeah, I worked at Marvin Windows for a little while. Okay. About a year, I, just did, I don't like working in factories. I mean, I'm an outdoors kind of a person. And when, during Desert Storm, I was actually introduced to scuba diving and on an MWR tour at Bahrain. And I got my first initial certification in uh, Saudi Arabia, actually at uh, one of the Aramco complexes. And I just decided that I, I wanted to do something different with my life. And so uh, I spent, I, I got back in December of 91, and I spent most of 92 getting my affairs in order. In March of 93, I moved to Houston. I went to commercial diving school, and I went to work in the oil field. I didn't really plan on going to work in the oil field, but I wanted to be a commercial diver. And the oil field is where all the work was at. And um, I've spent most of my career, I, I spent probably... Can I, can I pause a, for a second? Oh, sure. we, let's pause for a second here. Sure. I'm not familiar with the commercial diving aspect of oil and gas outside of like some, some deep sea welding or something like that. Is there, 
you know, is there exploratory diving jobs? I guess talk to me a little bit about how that that diving job became a gateway into oil and gas. And I've, I'm, I apologize for my naivete on that. No, not at all. You know, and, and, and it's real easy. And, and you touched on part of it. Diving and welding is part of it. Although welding underwater has become almost a bygone thing because... No kidding. Those welding, the, the welds that you perform underwater quench very quickly yeah. compared to welding a pipeline on the surface across, you know, western North Dakota. So they're very brittle. So the majority of the work I did, I actually laid pipe. Um, we installed platforms. We removed platforms. I worked on big derrick barges, pipe plate barges, as well as dedicated dive support vessels. And then in uh, 99, when, when uh, I convinced my, my girlfriend of five years, I'll, it wasn't really five years if you ask her, because I was home about 20 or 30 days out of every year, and two or three at a time usually. Um, she thought she wanted me home every night. And she didn't realize what she was asking for, but I, I, I took a job in operations and then ultimately sales working for a company called Superior Diving, who I had been diving for previously. Uh, I was there for in the working in the office about four years, and I started getting some other job offers that were a whole lot better than the the um, place I was working. It opened doors with companies like Shell, Exxon, Chevron, VP, and uh, I continued working for that company, Epic Divers, for about two years. Then I went back offshore for about a year working as a oil company representative. So I was the guy in charge of boat offshore. And then I got pulled back into sales in 2005 working for a company. It was actually one of Forbes's top, top 10 fastest growing companies in America for two years post Katrina. That, the name of that company was Deep Marine Technology. I stayed there until they started failing in 2009 is when I started my own company. And I've been with, I've been self-employed ever since. So how did you transition then? I don't know. Are you completely out of oil and gas and into wind energy a hundred percent or talk to me a little bit about that whole deal? I'd say about, about 80% wind and about 20% energy, uh, oil and gas. Most of what we're doing with oil and gas, is decommissioning. I believe there's 27 structures off the California coast right now that are slated for removal. And one of our boats is, um, we have tendered several of those projects, both for the state of California, as well as the individual operators that originally installed them. I'm under non-disclosure on that. I can't say who owns them, but it, not rocket science. There's only three companies that own, own structures off the California coast. Yeah. You so, know, the, the trend has been, especially since the downturn in 2012, is that the large oil companies are removing these, these minimal producing structures and reinvesting that money in other areas like Exxon is in Guyana. But the the majority of the work that we're seeing in oil and gas, which is about probably 20% of our business, is almost all removal. Interesting. It's, 
taking those structures out. We do have one bid in in um, Saudi Arabia for a very large international. Um, uh, I guess you'd call them a, a multinational uh, contractor. They're installing uh, the Marjan project for Aramco. We've got live bids out for that, that we may or may not end up securing that work. So the wind energy part, what's, um, how, how'd you get into that from oil and gas then? I mean, was it, was it you know, bid you work? Know, uh, obviously bid work, but how, how did that initially happen? In early 2020, when the COVID crisis was beginning, um, I had several meetings with a gentleman named Gary Wilmore. Gary and I have done a lot of joint work together over the last 10, 15, 20 years. Gary was actually the state inspector for the state of Rhode Island and installed the Block Island structure. The, the five structures at Block Island in 2015 and 16. And we just sat down talking one day and we said, you know, oil and gas is, is really kind of a, a fading trend, if you will. And Gary says, you know what we ought to do is we ought to start a company between, I, I'm, I'm a bit younger than he is, Gary's 68, I'm 54. He says, you got a lot of, a lot of spunk left in you. You know, what would you think if we started a company that did primarily wind? I, I was familiar with his, his previous offshore wind um, installation experience. I said, let's do it, Gary. I didn't even have to think about it. I looked at my wife. It was actually Memorial Weekend. Gary had a barbecue at his house. I looked at my wife. She winked, and I said, Gary, let's do it. And it really, it just didn't take any thought process because it is the future. There are somewhere between six and 15,000 structures that will be installed off the Atlantic seaboard in the next 10 years. And when I started in the Gulf of Mexico, there were approximately 7,000 structures. So in 50 years, we put in 7,000 structures. When you say structures, you talk about the wind turbines? That's correct. That's correct. There are I want to say 11 to 14 various fields under consideration. And the 2018 Department of Energy report, which is the newest one I've been able to find for business development purposes, states that there are 6,000 sanctioned structures that will go in. You know, there's 80 in this field, there's 140 in this field, 150 in that field. You know, you've got your various operators, your Orsteads, your vineyards, Avangrids. Each one of them has contracts with each state to produce X number of megawatts or gigawatts of electrical power. So off of each coastline, there are, you know, corresponding numbers of, you know, 800 megawatts. I think it is off New York, although I may have my numbers crossed. But, uh, you know, they range anywhere from a couple hundred megawatt off of uh, Rhode Island to, I want to say, 1,300 off of Massachusetts. Each one of those, each one of those individual facilities um, produces about 10 and a half megawatts of power with what's currently available. GE did just come out with a larger one that produces 13 and a half, but they're 
Um, there's some time prior to delivery. So most of the ones that are planned now are about 10 and a half megawatt generators for the individual structures. And then the fields, you know, there's 80 to 100, 150 of them, depending on which field it is. Who's the, um, who's the customer when it comes to wind? Or I guess who, who's the operator when, it, you know, the wind, you know, who's, who's in charge there? You know, when it comes to the oil and gas, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the Exxons and the BPs and up in Alaska, what is there, Shell and BP up there? Or no, Exxon and BP. Exxon, yeah, Exxon, BP, Shell on the, on the North Slope. Yeah, you know what I mean? But in wind energy, are, is it these global oil and gas companies or is it, you know, wind to companies? Some extent, to some extent, yes. Shell okay. and BP are very active in the renewables. Now, when you say renewable, are you talking wind? Primarily wind, yes. Okay, yeah. Although there's other stuff, you know, there's solar, there's wave power, there's there's all this stuff under consideration. Oh, nuclear. Wind, nuclear. Mm-hmm. Um, Shell and BP are very active in the U.S. East Coast wind market. But what's interesting is there's only one U.S. company involved in the Atlantic offshore wind industry, that being Dominion Energy. They're based out of New Orleans. Sure. And and um, that, that's really the only one that you've seen, huh? It is. Now, there are a lot of operators out of Norway, Holland, the UK. You've got Orsted, which is a Dutch company. You have uh, Equinor, which is a Norwegian company, formerly Stout Oil. Boy, this is interesting. You have... Um, Gosh, there's EDF out of Spain. Of course, of course Shell is Royal Dutch Shell. I mean, they're they're out of Holland. And then you've got, um, gosh, there's a bunch more. You've got Avangrid, which is a partnership, and I can never keep these straight. The partnership ones. I, you know, um, these companies you mentioned. You know, Statoil is the one that jumped out to me, and you know they they do a lot in drilling. You know, in, in oil. I think they do. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, Absolutely. These, the, the, huge, huge, huge global players. Right, right. So those other companies you named, um, are they also in the oil and gas markets, these European companies you named? Um, the only one that I know for certain is is BP Shell and uh, Stout Oil slash Equinor, yeah. which I... I don't know why they changed their name. I think it had to do with their play in, in renewables. Oh, I, it it flat out had to do with the word oil in there. Absolutely it did. Totally. That's right. the same reason why BP, BP went to went from British Petroleum to BP so that people can think beyond petroleum is, you know, the new acronym and whatever the heck is. But, no, I just wanted to make sure because I Statoil was the only one that jumped out as kind of a hybrid oil and gas slash wind energy so the rest are basically wind energy companies that are coming in and building uh offshore are these off these are offshore you're talking about right that's correct and i mean right now there are five producing windmills off of the u.s coast and those are on rhode island rhode island off of block island now there are some exploratory ones I think there's some off of Virginia. There's some floaters off of the California coast, but those are used primarily for research and development for what the 
what the true win potential is. We don't, the very first utility grade installation will be vineyard, which is off of Martha's vineyard. And I have five blocks. Each one of those is going to have, you know, 80 to 150 individual windmills. All right. You're going to, you're going to probably get upset, but what, what's vineyard? Is that, is that a geographical colloquial term? Is that a name of a project? Is that a name of an energy company? What's vineyard? No. So vineyard is another operator and they will actually be the first ones to install a utility grade facility offshore on the U S coast. Okay. So they're a U.S. company. No, they're actually a partnership between two companies, and I don't remember which two off the top of my head. Okay. My apologies. No, that's okay. That's okay. It's pop quiz, so it's okay. Um, they're okay, but they're, they're, they're not U.S. companies, though? They have a, a U.S. subsidiary okay. on of, uh, okay. of here, but, but they are owned by some of the others that I mentioned, Orsted, Equinor. Sure. Um, I don't remember which two exactly. Okay. No, I'm just curious if it's, you know. The second we get off this call, I will look it up, and and I won't, I won't, you won't catch me tongue-tied again on that one. No, that's okay, because, no, I'm just, I'll tell you where my mind is, and I, you know, I don't want to editorialize, and I don't want to get upset, or I don't want to, you know, cause any issues or anything like that, but. It just seems like, you know, over the last few years, there's been a lot of dollars and a lot of uh, energy directional to go towards, you know, the wind and, and et cetera. And then so hearing that, you know, all these companies are foreign companies and yet our government sending people to go there and it's just, it's different. It almost seems like uh, Europe got a real big head start. They did for 20 years, by 20 years. You know, they've been putting these things up in, in, uh, off of, uh, the United Kingdom, all the way around Ireland. There's, there's. I mean, they've they've been doing this for 20 years, and there's been discussion about this in the United States since the mid 90s. But the problem we've had is really the way the country is set up. We have um, the states control a certain portion of the waters off of their coast. You have the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, and BSEE, which are federal institutions, control all of the international waters, if you will. They're also tasked with, you know, so the the whole permitting process with having all of these competing interests has really slowed down the United States' entry into the offshore wind industry. Is there... Is there any discussion about just doing a, you know, maritime law? I mean, they do it with banking. Why, why, why can't they do it with energy like that? Well, because the states own the waters for three miles out. In okay. So it's three miles. Okay. okay. Louisiana's 12, and that goes back to whoever planted a flag in the ground was from a country that had a 12-mile limit. I want to say France actually originally got uh, the Louisiana coast. So the Louisiana coast is a 12-mile limit. It's very, very difficult to understand. I'm curious what happened to France, because they were part of the Alamo, too, but they don't seem to have anything left in Texas. There's a little bit left in Louisiana, but (laughs) just anyway. 
Um, Mostly the food. I, I know that's about it. You know, just kind of their their you know the the, the Creole slash uh, benets and everything. They they left a little bit of a French twist behind, but outside of that, certainly not much else. Right. Right. Um, there's a there's a heavy French Cajun culture, if you will, but it's almost more uh, French Canadian than it is France France because well, most of the settlers came from uh, from Canada. I was going to say, you know, uh, up in our neck of the woods, you know, Montreal, which is a little bit far away, but Canada, the, the language stuck around, <laughs> you know, just a little bit more than the food. Uh, so, okay, this is really, this is really interesting to me. So what you basically uh, transitioned because of the, you know, just the, the different workflow and the contracts and, and, and just basically the way the market Shook out, huh? I mean, am I hearing that yeah, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, it was real obvious that the amount of money and the amount of daily utilization days on a offshore vessel each year were diminishing. And on the East Coast, they're appreciating. It's, you know, that, that industry is in its infancy. So we provide two different services, if you will. We, as a result of Gary's prior involvement in Block Island and the requisite use of the union labor, and there's, an all, there's also all kinds of local content criteria. It's almost like working in a foreign country in that regard. You know, when we go to Nigeria, we got to have 40 or 50% local labor, sometimes more than 50%. Guyana is the same way. Everywhere in the world I've ever worked except for the U.S., now, when you work in New York, for instance, you've got to have a certain percentage of local content. Those people have to be union labor. So the first big milestone that we overcame with entry into the offshore wind market was the issuance of the one and only blanket union collective bargaining agreement that has been issued to date with all of the applicable labor unions. There's actually seven of them. Two of them are in process, but we have a, a five-party collective bargaining agreement that encompasses the carpenters' union, which is also the, the, the pile drivers, the dock builders, and the commercial divers. We've got the commercial engineers, the laborers' union, uh, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and the Brotherhood of Engineers, or it might not be brotherhood. It's the, you, the the engineers union, if you will. So that was our first step. Since then, the seafarers union has come to us because we provide vessels. We have a fleet of 47 vessels that we offer to the offshore wind industry. Um, we, we also provide a lot of ancillary support, the commercial diving, uh, subsea robotics, um, all the sensors, the, uh, all kinds of tools for underwater and the big construction vessels. So one of the things that has been a real key issue with the actual installation and construction beyond the labor is you have to use what are called Jones Act compliant vessels. And the Jones Act, which was enacted in 1920, is basically been around, the, the philosophy's been around since the Phoenician times. And what it does is it protects your domestic marine industry, shipbuilding, 
coastal trading, the coastwise trade aspect of moving products or people from one domestic port to another. That actually applies to the offshore wind industry. So you have to have a boat that was one built in the United States, two is owned and operated by a U.S. company, and three is staffed by U.S. personnel to work in the offshore wind industry by law. That doesn't mean they won't issue waivers, because as you mentioned previously, the Europeans are 20 years ahead of us. They've got a lot more of these vessels. Dimedian Energy is building one. Uh, Weeks Marine is building one. And then we also have a third that is kind of quasi-Jones Act compliant. And what I mean by that is it's owned and operated or will be owned and operated. We're in the, we're in the process of an acquisition on the boat. It's a 2014-built 460-foot vessel with bumps for 399 people. And it has a thousand ton Derrick crane on the back deck. We can never be fully Jones Act because it was actually built in the Marco Polo shipyard in Batom. But we can operate within the Jones Act because we're not going to transport anyone or any cargo from one U.S. port to another. All of that will be brought out by barges, tugboats, uh, supply boats, crew boats, helicopters. And then we will strictly work in the field doing the installation. You mentioned the labor, kind of the one-stop shop, if you will. I kind of joked one article I did the first year in the Bakken that uh, in North Dakota, you know, if you're a plumber, a pipe fitter, an electrician, you got to be certified by the, by the state. So these people were called, I called them... Uh, uh, deities and demigods of the oil patch, because boy, these people were so sought after. And I, there was a company out of Fargo; they had to stop sending people to the west because it was an electric company, electrician. The guy would go to dinner at night, and he get hired by somebody out at dinner for double his salary. And the kicker is that the electrician, the the energy or the electric company back in Fargo had to hire the guy back because there was such a shortage of these people. <laughs> so right. Um, right. that's interesting about what, what you guys have been able to put together. So um, basically what you're saying is that as companies are starting to realize that the transition is, is, is happening um, for people to find work that you guys are putting together this kind of, system that's going to be able to make it a little bit more user-friendly for people to get work? Does that make sense as far as uh, disseminating jobs and et cetera? It is. Between the, the five unions that we have under our umbrella currently, and I'm not saying that there won't be another contract like ours issued. It just it took four years for this one yeah. to, to transpire, to get all of the unions in agreement with a contract that Gary would actually execute. Um, it's to get all of these people on the same page is very difficult. Now is just, is this just for New York or is there other States too? Like, I don't know. Does Ro- no, no it, it includes all of the Eastern seaboard. Okay. And that's why it was so difficult and why it took four years to, to impact, to, to, to get this contract done is because each state has their own criteria also. 
So if you're working in New York, you have to pay a welder, for instance, or an electrician, one rate. If you go to New Jersey, that rate changes. So every time you change, you go across the state line, you're actually running into all kinds of paperwork nightmares to, to try to figure out, okay, so this guy worked from midnight to 6 o'clock in the morning in New York waters. We, uh, we crossed over into New Jersey while we were installing this cable at 6 in the morning, and he worked until noon. You know, that kind of thing. And when you, when you multiply that by maybe 300 people working on the back deck of a vessel, you know, it becomes a, a fairly onerous project just to track the paperwork, to pay these people properly, because all every state has got a different um, rate for these people, if you will. They make a different amount of money if they're in New York versus New Jersey, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Virginia, whatever. Yeah, I could imagine just between the certifications and the fees and the different paperwork, that could take all kinds of time and then throw COVID in there. Boy, that's... Oh, yeah, COVID given. has become a... You know, I mean, you've got the... We haven't seen a lot of COVID criteria yet on in the offshore wind. It's, it'll happen. It's inevitable. No, I was Maybe just not, talking like, about from from the uh, bureaucrats blaming, you know, everything on COVID for not getting things done in a timely manner. That's all. That's all I'm oh, talking yeah, about. <laughs> yeah, but, but that transposes into, you know, like when we work internationally and, and even to some extent last year, we were having to quarantine these people for seven days in a hotel by themselves prior to being able to go on a job. Um, then they had to quarantine for seven days before they could go home. And if they demonstrated any symptoms, you know, it's, it's, it's become a very, very difficult issue to deal with and a a costly one because we have to charge for those people. I mean, they expect to get paid if they're not at home and rightfully so. So we have to pass that cost onto our client and they don't want to really eat at all. So you've got to negotiate with them individually on a case by case basis. You know, Hey, I'll take half of it. You take half of it kind of thing. This might be over your head, and I apologize, but just because of the complexity of international waters and state waters and international companies and local companies and state unions and I don't know if, you know, the old traditional movies are correct with unions or not, but you got some other entities that are in the shadow behind the scenes maybe too, so I don't know, but when it comes to... (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. There's an awful lot of politicking goes on behind the scenes. So, okay, exactly. But 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 at the end of the day, what brings everybody together together is uh, who's getting paid. So, how, are, are you guys using you know digital dollars? Is the import export bank involved? Does it funnel through the government and they pay you through subsidies? How how is everybody getting paid on this? I can answer part of that. Okay. Some of, some of it is well beyond my, my, my area of knowledge. No, that's okay, because it's a very complicated question. I, I don't think people realize how complicated it is. So the state of New York, and I'll just use that as one instance, because I just read the contract here within the last matter of a few days, because we got a tender in. So unlike a traditional oil and gas tender, most of these people send out, their contract with the state of New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, or whatever, when they send out a contract, 
or a, a contract tender request, and you're expected to be in full compliance. So what happens is the state of New York contracts with an Orsted, a Dominion, a Vineyard, and they are uh, uh, the Orsteds, the Vineyards, whatever, are expected to provide a kilowatt hour of electricity for a given price for a given period of time. So they're they're under long-term contract for the production of power for like a state utility commission. So on the, on the inverse side of that, you have all of these federal tax subsidies that are being paid and and it's actually impacted the installation schedules substantially. You have companies I'll use Atlantic Shores, which is one of the developments off of Massachusetts, northern Massachusetts, as an example. That company is not going to start their actual installation and construction until they receive all of their appropriate documentation on their federal tax subsidies. So instead of them starting construction this year, that particular project will actually be pushed back till next year. So, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of moving pieces. You know, you've got your state utility commission contracting with the developer, the Orsted, the Vineyard, the Atlantic Shores to produce the energy. Then you've got the federal government is paying subsidies. And then you've got all of these other things moving at the state and at the federal level as far as the permitting and, the, you know, it's, it's very, very complex. And that's one of the reasons why instead of having wind energy off of our coast 20 years ago, it's taken until 2021 or 2015 before the first offshore installations were done and 2021 to 23 before we have an actual functioning utility grade um, offshore wind component that, that's utility grade that can actually, you know, support an, a state grid. So you're, you're doing 20% oil and gas work, but it's primarily decommissioning offshore wells. Is that correct? Or pipelines. Or, pi and, or pipelines. And, yeah, because a lot of times now they're actually required to remove the pipelines. Okay, okay. And um, and you said about eighty percent, and this is the last couple of years that this shift has happened. Where after how many years were you in oil and gas? Twenty nine. Yeah, yeah, thirty is just right around the corner. So third after thirty years of oil and gas, I mean, was this was this shift from you know a hundred percent of oil and gas to eighty twenty? Was that within a two year span? There was actually a decline that started post Deepwater Horizon, the Mocondo incident from BP, um, things got a lot more difficult. They, they became a lot more onerous and the regulatory bodies started looking a lot harder prior to the issuance of permits. And then we had the downturn of the industry that started in 2012 and to some extent is still ongoing. So it's, it's since 2012, we've seen the industry just continually diminish it's funny you called 2012 the downturn that's when it hit hundred dollar oil <laughs> yeah but that was the peak from there it went downhill no i know i've just never heard of it referred to that because i've always you know 2015 is what they call the downturn and um you know right around that time end of 14 and into 16 but i i remember 
Oh, I did an article for one of the publications. I can't remember if it was the Bismarck Tribune or the Dickinson Press, maybe both. But I went to a conference, and this was in 2013, at the end of 2013, and the article was about how, well, the CEOs are done coming to the Bakken. Yeah, it's like a rare albino elk sighting now because, the, you know, it was over. You know, right. for a variety of reasons, the, the $100 oil was done. But the Bakken's a little bit different because um, for there, you know, they, they need to prove that the oil's there. They, they already knew it was there because of the science, but they needed that $100 oil to go drill a quick cap, you know, well and cap it. And, and prove it, and then they got 20, 25 years to drill. So now it's just a commodities price game for, for out right. there. Uh, you know, when they, when they drill the exploratory wells, they're looking for proven reserves, right? Yeah, and, and because, you know, the, the, the library they have in the Bach, in the Laird Library, and every oil company's had to do a core sample since the 50s, um, you know, th- that sort of shared knowledge just allowed all these companies to know what was down there, but you still had to prove it. Yeah, you still had to physically prove it. Um, right. And, and, you know, when it hit $100 oil, they were able to do that, you know, out in, you know, Fortuna areas where you got to get to the, you know, $90 range. I think it's Fortuna. Uh, I apologize for for not knowing my micro specifics of the dollar ranges out there in the Bakken at this point because there's a pop quiz for me here too. So, hey, look at that. We both have pop quiz fails today, so that's okay. Um, well, I was more curious about just how your transition went from the oil and gas to wind. It doesn't sound like it was political. It was more marketplace, and the marketplace was kind of driven by by regulations and subsidies. It really it, it has been. And, yeah. you know, the, the behind-the-scenes planning and permitting and stuff, is now just coming to a head. They've been working on this since the 90s, trying to figure out how do we put offshore wind off of the United States coast? You know, um, they got real serious about it in about 2005 and started doing some some planning and stuff. And I mean, that was long before I ever considered it as a business opportunity. I was still working for other people at the time. And... Um, as Gary and I worked on various projects in 2017, 18, 19, we talked a little bit about it. It just became more apparent the more homework that I did on it, that this is truly the future of energy. And if you look at some of the books that were written by Michael Economides, who was a, a um, uh, University of Houston um, what was he? He's a, he was an economist. He passed away on an airplane coming out of Javier or a Bush Airport in Houston, flying to DC in 2013. But he wrote some extremely good books about the global expansion of energy consumption and how much more we're going to need every year as as some of these third world countries get into having electricity and running water and flush toilets and microwaves and motorcycles versus pedal bicycles. You know, there's a lot of parts of the world. We, we, Americans are spoiled at the end of the day, right? We, we've got things that they don't have in other parts of the world. 
But as these other parts of the world start to experience what it's like to have a toaster, what it's like to have not cook your dinner like they do in in uh, in Haiti on charcoal, um, they get greedy for more. It's just human nature. You know, I mean, that's pretty cool. I didn't have to go buy charcoal today to cook dinner. You know, I've got I've got gas. I've got electricity. And I want more of it, you know? I want lights on instead of having to, to go to bed when it gets dark. And there's a lot of third world countries that just don't have that. And, and as they get just a little taste of it, they want more. And Michael, it was just a phenomenal, um, a lot of his books were just phenomenal. His talks were even better. How he delved into that and, and how the exponential growth of the energy industry is gonna outpace even what oil and gas is available, how much oil and gas is available to produce this energy, he predicted this way back in you know 09, 010. I, I, I listened to several of his talks, and it really started making sense in 17, 18, talking with Gary about the Block Island Project. As, as I learned more about offshore wind, it just became the no-brainer. It, it, it was... To me, it was just, uh, you know, this is the next big thing. I remember when I saw the Super Bowl ad for, I want to say it was Exxon. I believe it was Exxon that was doing, so. doing the plankton, like biofuel. Right. Yeah, and when I saw I think that was like 10 years ago now that I'm thinking about it. When when I saw that, that's when I, I knew that oil and gas companies were going to be forced to just be an energy company. It was no longer, you, you, you can no longer be sustainable just doing oil and gas. It, they, they were going to force you to just either do all the above, because that was the term back then, all the above. Right. Uh, and um, now, now I, I think that term's kind of passe. Um, there's some other terms they're using, and I forget the one that, uh, Oh, when the the energy secretary, who's the new energy secretary, um, Grisholm, is that her name? Yeah, yeah. When she did that, so. when she did that interview with the Washington Post, and they put the transcript up, and and she just flat out said, "Hey, get on board or go away." And all of a sudden, you know, the API came out shortly after and said, "Let's start having a public discussion about the uh, climate tax and climate pricing and." Yeah, all the signs are there, you know, all the signs yeah, are, are, are there, you know, and it's, it's you know, I, I call this year the year that's going to be defined by defection, and yeah. and the marketplace was part of the, part of it, and what you're telling me is exactly what I thought, which is the very sterile reality of just the way the manipulation of a marketplace can happen. And and manipulation is not meant to be a negative word, just an actual, just the way that it's being controlled. Now, the other side of it, of the defined by defection, and it doesn't sound like this is you, but maybe, I don't know, um, is the kind of the, the um, you know, big oil is the new big tobacco, if you will, kind of the modern day leper. And, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to socially shame oil and gas now, this, you know, and, and that sort of thing. Um, I think that's part of it too, you know, when people are, are getting shamed at parties and they're not making the six figures anymore. And John Kerry saying, you know, go, 
go go build solar panels and that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that's tough to stay loyal to an industry. So, um, I don't know. I don't know if you're following me at all, but I am. And and you know, my real, I knew I was doing the right thing. My my kids. I have a daughter that turned eighteen last week, and she'll be going to college next year. She's got a free ride. Um, locally and um when she started taking an interest in the renewable energy business she's got a little bit of a i'm not going to say leftist but maybe a little bit of a liberal a little bit left of center liberal outlook on things and when she started looking at the things that we were doing and applauding it there was no question in my mind that this was truly the future. And I mean, all the signs were there, but the social acceptance of it, it really came from my kids. Let me ask you a question. Um, sure. Well, cause you've got, you know, 29 years in the industry, you got to have some respect for the industry. I would imagine. A tremendous amount. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done very well. It's, it's been better to me than farming in the North part of the, of the, the country could have ever been to me. And, you know, you're, you're doing 80% wind, basically, um, 20% oil and gas, and a lot of that was directed by the marketplace in the last couple of years. But you're also not blind to, you know, the, the, the trends that are out there and et cetera. <clears throat> how, can, how can the industry, and this is, by the way, no right or wrong answer to this because – the industry has spent billions of dollars in the last 10 years, and we've gone from plastic bags and, and plastic straws, whether we should ban them or is paper or plastic better, to the freaking president is issuing a war on oil and gas. So, I mean, things are not going the direction that the money was spent for public relations in the industry, right? So how, how can we convince or connect and engage with people like your daughter, and I'm not saying your daughter has a dis- disdain or a despise against oil and gas, but so much of the you know wind turbines and so much of the solar panels and so much of what we do on a daily basis is is fossil fuel related and petroleum. I mean, a lot of the wind turbine is made out of petroleum, and Teslas are too. How do we absolutely, get absolutely, absolutely the, the the copper and the transmission yeah. cables? What what is that mined with? Totally. It's, it's mined with diesel-operated Caterpillar equipment, right? So h- how do we connect and get them to understand that, you know, we, we need a, you know, we are energy united front, a, more of a kumbaya than a, you know, it's all the, only this kind or only that kind and, and that sort of thing, you know, is, I don't even know the answer, but is there a way to connect with these kids anymore or is just, just the horse too far out of the barn at this point? You know, I honestly don't know the answer to that. But what I, tr- I personally believe, if you look at the United States, you know, we're the the administration in Washington has got this big push for renewables, and that's great because oil and gas can't pr- produce all of the energy that's going to be needed in ten years, twenty years, thirty years, right? But on the inverse side of that coin. Does it really do the globe any good for us to quit trying to use hydrocarbons 
when you have places like China that are going to install 5,000 new coal-fired electrical plants in the next 10 years. You know, what's the... It, to me, it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's what I'm wondering. Is that is that where we're going to go? Is are we going to wage war on China because they are using coal to stay warm? I don't know. I mean, you know, I mean, I, mean, I, I know it's, it's ridiculous. You know, there's, there's an awful lot of politicking behind that, right? Well, it's a ridiculous question, but I mean, if they're forcing a country, you know, that they can only use their toaster on Tuesday because it's bad for the environment and climate change, and another country is just firing up coal plants. I mean, pr- pretty soon somebody's going to say, well, I want to use my toaster three times a week now. Right. <laughs> and by the way, that's exactly. America is the one that can only use the toaster a few times a week. Well, I'm just curious about the climate czar and the climate envoy and what direction they're going, you know? You know, I don't think personally that we have the influences in other parts of the world so we can truly make a difference. When you have every country acting as its own sovereign, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, as much as I don't like the idea of one global government, I think that's what it would take to well, truly that's, make a difference. Uh, that's, the, um, that's been the conspiracy theory and ever since you know Earth Day first came around and you know, right. is that eventually, you know, the United Nations is going to take over the military and force everybody through the act of, well, back then, I think it was global warming is what it started as. something. Yeah, like yeah but because the environment is the one thing that we all share. You know, we all share that because and it's very easy to connect with the environment. I mean, you walk sure. outside and you can connect and you got great memories. And, you know, even from the you know, I, I grew up Catholic, and I was an altar boy, a Sunday school teacher. I went to Catholic school, and so I was spoon- Our kids are in Catholic school. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so, so, so you know me. I was spoon-fed fear and guilt my whole life, right? Just kind of, right. <laughs> that's my Catholic joke. And um, But when, when I look at, you know, just even original sin from the whole, you know, we, we've destroyed the planet, so we got to feel guilty about it. Just this whole movement, it's, it's all there. Uh, it's, it's interesting, you know? I mean... Right. People can call it a conspiracy, or they can call it real, or they can call it just, you know, evolution, but it's just, it's there. <laughs> I mean, right. it's, it ha- it's happening. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, 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 it's on in color every day at six. Well, like I said, in the last 10 years, when you take a look at, when I grew up, and you, when, when you got into the industries in the 90s, right? That's when I was yeah. graduating high school. The only thing oil and gas ever came up with was the Exxon Valdez oil spill and gas prices. And that's it. Never any problems. And then in the 2000s, you started with plastic bags because of the litter. It was more about the litter than it was about the plastic bags. And the same thing with the straws. It was more about the litter than it was about the plastic straws. But either well, way, the fact that they don't that they don't degrade. Well, yeah, like, but yeah, you but, know, it's that paper sack. Totally, but then they found out paper was was worse than plastic because of the logging and the amount of diesel it takes right. and blah 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 right. and and but either way, and you know, in the in the '90s or I'm sorry, in the 2000s, it was basically that. Well, then in the last 10 years, we've gone from Elizabeth Warren to Bernie Sanders to AOC to the Green New Deal to where. 
Like I said, Biden is issuing executive orders. That's amazing. And 20 years of just of gas prices was the only issue to now there's this. I'm just, I'm blown away by such a thing. So. And, and you know, when I had to pay for heating oil in Minnesota as a young adult and gasoline and oil and oil changes and tires and all this other stuff that comes from hydrocarbons, it used to trouble me. And, and you, you might find this hilarious, but when my parents complain about that, they still live in Roseau. My dad retired from Marvin's. He worked at Marvin's and Polaris most of his adult life. I tell them, hey, ain't it great? Gas is four bucks a gallon. We're making money again. You know, and I'm dead serious, and they're dead serious. You know, we're on we're, our thought processes are on, on two different sides of the coin. Right. Absolutely. You know, they're, they're trying to live on a, on a fixed income in retirement, and I'm just trying to feed my family and keep them in Catholic school long enough to get them into college, you know? Right. And, you know, natural gas, that's interesting, too, because, you know, uh, up up in your parents' part of the world, I imagine XL Energy is who they have? Um, they have an independent uh, cooperative. Oh, sure. Uh, the, okay. No, I, know, I, actually. I, I had one for a while, too, when I was rural outside of Fargo-Moorhead. Um, we were as a Halstead cooperative. So, the, But um, at any rate, there was, you know, all those tax credits, and the government basically forced everybody in one step or another to uh, do a gas furnace up here. And, Absolutely. And so it's funny, you know, when, when gas prices go from, you know, a buck to two bucks to all of a sudden eight bucks, holy smoke, somebody on a fixed income, that's tough. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Of course, the oil and gas companies are like, finally, some money we're making in natural gas after losing our tail for 10 years. <laughs> it's, Absolutely. It's, and, and, you know, it takes an Exxon or a Chevron, a Shell, somebody like that. It takes them at least $60, $65 a barrel to actually break even between the time you figure the exploration of the building of the production infrastructure and, and everything that goes with that. And, you know, when we were in the, what, 2005, 2000, right up until the, the, the BP spill, we were actually, they were making money. We were making money. It wasn't perfect. But if you take a smaller company that buys these divestitures, when, when Shell and Chevron gets done with, with these properties, when they start to become a, what they call a marginal property, they can make money, you know, somebody like maybe a Walter Oil and Gas or, or somebody like that. They can make money at substantially less, maybe 40 or $50 a barrel. And it, and it's, it's really interesting from my perspective to look at that. You know, a smaller company, they've got a smaller overhead. They've got less personnel. They've got less money tied up in exploration. They take these divestiture packages from BPs and the shells of the world. And they do a little work over on the well and spend a couple million dollars. And all of a sudden, this thing's producing real well again. And But it, it's always been interesting to me where the oil had to be at for each of these companies to actually be, be profitable. Yeah. Hmm. And and that is, I imagine, changed in the last couple of years, too, with new, oh, regu changed dramatically new regulations they, they the, and everything. Yeah. Well, and they beat the contractors up. Last year, several of them, Marine Energy being one of them, came back to the contractors because most of them ended up in bankruptcy Yeah, with COVID. And um, they were asking their contractors to take a 20 to 30% cut, and there was no money to cut because they were already operating at rock bottom. 
Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about the operators asking their supply chain and then turn around and file bankruptcy or get sold out or get bought out. And then they, you know, grandfather in those new cut contracts and all these other things. And so it's it's been tough over there for the past couple of years for a lot of a lot of the supply chain been very tough, very tough. Oh, it has been, absolutely. Yeah. So, okay, um, kind of looking at the time you're wrapping up, you know, g- make sure you give your company a plug again, but just kind of, you know, most of our audience is oil and gas. So, you know, what, what message, you know, you want people to walk away from and, and, and how can people utilize your business? Well, we... Blue Boat Subsea, one of the companies that, that, that I have ownership in, is a primarily a renewables energy service provider. Um, we provide both vessels for the offshore construction, maintenance, and operation of offshore wind turbine facilities. But we do about 20% of our business in the global oil and gas segment also. Um we're here. We're, we're always available. Most people in various parts of the world I know myself or my business partner, Gary Wilmore. And, um, you know, we have in the last year really embraced the renewables because we see it as the future. I, with what I know of the overall energy sector, the use of oil and gas is, um, been on an increase ever since we first drilled our first oil well and uh, offshore in South Louisiana, South Louisiana swamps in the early 1900s. You know, as as everybody that uses oil and gas continually uses more oil and gas, and at some point there's just not enough of it. So that's one of the reasons that we embrace the renewable. We we see the global exponential growth of consumption not being able to be satisfied by just oil and gas. And that's why we embraced the renewables and the, the offshore wind as we have. It's um, To us, it's helping to supply a, a large part of the future energy segment and the, the consumption of the United States, especially in the larger metropolitan areas that don't have oil wells in their backyard. The only thing that is available are wind turbines or or other forms of renewable energy yet to be developed. 